Paleo Runner is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me at facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using lately called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates as a fuel source. Unlike other sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream and gives you energy throughout your workout. It won't give you a blood sugar spike like other sports drinks, which means you can utilize fats throughout your workout. I recently did a 21-mile training run using 3Fuel, and I only had to take in around 200 calories because it allowed my body to continue burning fat for fuel. If you'd like to try it, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link to Displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Dr. William Davis. Dr. Davis is a preventative cardiologist whose unique approach to diet allows him to advocate reversal, not just prevention of heart disease. His book, Wheat Belly, became a New York Times bestseller within a month of publication in 2011. In his book, he writes about how eliminating, eliminating wheat from your diet can offer benefits from weight loss to a broad spectrum of digestive disorders. Dr. Davis, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, I'm glad to be here, Aaron. So tell me a little bit about your background, about how you became interested in wheat and diet. Well, uh, I wish I could tell you it was a, a a flash of insight, but it was really kind of stumbling over many years before I really understood what was going on. It's, it started many years ago when I first became vegetarian and uh, on hearing uh, Dr. Dean Ornish's uh, advice, by the way, mm-hmm. and um, this was advice to cut out all meats and oils and eat only uh, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. Now, I was uh, a runner back then like you, not quite as serious, but I would run three to five miles a day, mm-hmm. and I promptly became diabetic while I was doing all these crazy things. So it took me a while to understand what the heck. Now, I'm, I'm no longer diabetic, having uh, finally come to an understanding of what happened. But many more years passed, and I diverted my attentions away from what I was doing, which was uh, coronary angioplasty and all those kinds of heart procedures. And I started to really focus on understanding why people had heart disease. Because if, if you endorse the conventional line in heart disease that is just um, cutting fat and paying attention to cholesterol values, you will fail. Uh, in other words, doing those things will not provide control over heart disease. I wanted to help patients have better control and not just submit to procedures. So uh, a, there's a simple fact in heart disease, and that is if you have diabetes, pardon me, or pre-diabetes, you will not have control over heart disease. You just cannot. In other words, the excess risk introduced by diabetes and pre-diabetes is such that you cannot control risk for heart disease. You can still have a heart attack, die, uh, need procedures, etc., as long as those conditions persist. So I used very simple logic, and that is the glycemic index of wheat products. Mm-hmm. That is the the how high blood sugar ranges over 90 minutes uh, with any wheat product, whole wheat, white bread, any wheat product is among the highest of all foods. That simple fact, Aaron, is simply not talked about uh, in nutrition, uh, in the dietary community. They tell us to eat these healthy whole grains, but fail to tell us you're going to be eating among the highest glycemic index foods there are. So Mm. I use that simple observation as people remove wheat so that they could get rid of or at least minimize their expression of diabetes and prediabetes. And they did that. Mm -hmm. Well, three months, four months, six months later, they come back and their fasting blood sugars would be much lower. Uh, The long-term measure of blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, would be dramatically lower. They lose 15, 18, 25, 30 pounds, 45 pounds, uh, substantial quantities of weight. 
uh, even though that was not what this was about. And then all the other stories started to pour in. People would come in and say, well, yeah, I, yeah, I lost 32 pounds and gee, my hip pain is gone. And my, my acid reflux was gone within three days. My joint pains in my wrist and fingers gone within five days. I'm happier. My skin is smoother. I don't have seborrhea. My psoriasis that was there for 18 years disappeared. My ulcerative colitis is so much better. I've stopped two drugs. They're talking about stopping the third. My Crohn's disease has completely gone away. My rheumatoid arthritis that was causing me disfigurement in my hands and wrists is gone. I have almost full flexibility back. I've stopped two out of three drugs. I'm working on the third. My asthma is so much better. I threw away my two inhalers. In other words, all these incredible stories start to pour in. And it became clear that uh, this was not just a matter of reducing blood sugar, as I had originally set out to do. It was an observation of life and health transformations that I was witnessing. And I didn't understand what the heck was going on. Why, why would eliminating one class of foods do so many things? And that's when I started to ask questions about what the heck happened to mm -hmm. this thing called wheat. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned there that you developed diabetes by following a, a, a low-fat, high-carb diet how did you how did you know initially that it was the wheat that that helped you develop that was it because you looked at the glycemic index no i really didn't know uh, but I was uh, so eating no meat, of course, no added oils, eating uh, such things as uh, whole grain toast and uh, cereals for breakfast, you know, these uh, like like shredded wheat cereals. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't specifically pinpoint wheat then, but I suspected it was the grains in mm -hmm. general. So I just cut back on the grain. I didn't cut them out back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and I probably became non-diabetic just with that modest and incomplete effort and incomplete insight. So I, I wish I could tell you I saw the the light back then, mm -hmm. but I did not. I only had an, had an inkling of what was going on back then. But uh, I did manage to get my blood sugars down into the normal range just by doing those simple things and keep keeping up the uh, the exercise routine. Mm -hmm. So is if wheat raises insulin so high and is spiking blood sugar, why are we constantly told that it's a whole grain, that it's going to be slowly digested, at least that's what I've heard, that especially for people who run and exercise, that we should consume lots of it, especially the <laughs> night before a race. Where, where did that advice ever come from? I think it simply ignores the fact that the glycemic potential of whole grains, whole wheat is so high. It simply ignores that fact. And by the way, this, this business of blood sugars can be blunted by combining, say, whole wheat with, with fats, fibers, and mm. proteins is nonsense. There mm. is a germ of truth in there, forgive the pun. So in other words, if I had two slices of white bread with uh, just, just white bread, say, and my mm. blood sugar goes to 180, which is a very bad level. Mm -hmm. If I have two slices of whole wheat bread, blood sugar goes to about 185, 190. Mm -hmm. What if I have that same whole wheat bread now with thick with let's say, uh, roast beef, mayonnaise, uh, lettuce, all those kinds of things that are supposed to modify the glycemic potential of that bread. Man, now my blood sugar is 170. It is better. It's still terrible. So to say, so the dietitians need to be taught. It's not, it, what they should tell people is it's less bad. It's okay. not good. Less bad. This is a lesson we've got to repeat over and over and over again in nutritional thinking. Less bad does not mean good. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, because that's the whole basis of the flawed logic in nutrition, the nurse's health study, the physician's health study, all those epidemiologic studies that purport to prove that whole grains are good for you never did anything of the kind. Mm -hmm. What they did was show that if you replace something bad, white flour products, mm -hmm. with something 
less bad, whole grains, and there's an apparent health benefit. And Aaron, there's no question there is. There is less colon cancer, less diabetes, less weight gain, less heart disease. So by the logic of nutrition, replace something bad with something less bad, eat a whole bunch of the less bad thing. It must <laughs> be good for you. So the question was not asked. Well, that's true. Gee, what happens when you completely remove it from the diet? But that's when you see complete transformation of health. And this is not just my observations, by the way. This, this, is, this observation is being made in the paleo community, the primal community, the low-carb community, the mm -hmm. gluten-free community. So we're, a lot of us are converging. By the way, these observations are in the published literature. They're often misconstrued misinterpreted. So for instance, even in the celiac literature, there's a significant number of people, of course, celiac disease is that disease that comes from uh, eating wheat and gluten, it destroys the intestinal tract. If you eliminate uh, wheat and gluten and you start obese, you lose 26 pounds in the first six, six months. Now, the, the studies were interpreted to mean that it was from lack of choice in foods. Mm. Well, you know, if lack, if, if lack of choice and variety in food is all it took to lose 26 pounds, <laughs> that's pretty good. But it's not the lack of choice in foods. It's the lack of wheat that does okay. it. Okay. You mentioned in the introduction that your wife is a triathlete instructor and you've, you've been to a lot of the events and you've seen that like a third of the people are overweight. How can that possibly be that people, you know, a lot of people listening to the show are endurance athletes. How is it that we go to marathons and there's still people that are overweight? Isn't that something? You know, we have to give credit to those people for trying, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if they're just starting out, that would be understandable. But a lot of these people are seasoned veterans of marathons and triathlons. And of course, these people can work out up to several hours a day and have done so for years. And what the heck are they doing? with 20, 30, 50 pounds of excess weight. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so it's clearly not lack of exercise. Our own USDA and Surgeon General and all those official agencies tell us that we're fat as a country because we don't exercise enough or eat too much. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, they certainly don't exercise. They exercise more than enough, more than enough, so they must be eating too much. So in other words, our own government would label these people as gluttons. They're mm -hmm. fat because they <laughs> eat too much. Well, I find that hard to believe. You watch those people, by the way, you talk to them, you ask them, how do you eat? They say, I, I don't eat that much. I, I eat plenty of healthy whole grains. And, and in other words, uh, they've fallen down this, this uh, path of relying on grains. So I'll make this crazy point. Grains are grasses. We don't think of them that way. I, I think of grains as a euphemism for grass. In mm. other words, when you cut your lawn, you don't salivate, lick your chops because that <laughs> the clippings look so good. So we don't recognize grass as food. But wheat, corn, rice, sorghum, millet, uh, all those things are forms of grasses from the family Poaceae. They're all related. So wheat is very closely related to that grass that grows on your lawn, the grass that grows in uh, fields, the weeds that grow up in the cracks of your sidewalk. Those are grasses. And humans do not instinctively recognize grasses as food. That's why grasses like wheat, uh, corn, and soy are recent, I'm sorry, and rice are recent additions to the human experience. We have not existed eating grasses. We only added them in times of desperation between four and 8,000, 10,000 years ago when we learned how to manipulate them, pulverizing them, heating them, to make them digestible. So I call grains the food of the desperate and the ignorant. And so we turned them when we were desperate, but look what's happened now. We turned this food of desperation into the widest part of the food pyramid, the largest part of the food plate, 
And we're told that grasses, grains, should dominate mm -hmm. diet. What happens when you allow that to happen? This unnatural food, not recognized as food by humans instinctively. We become fat, diabetic. We develop rheumatoid arthritis and 74 other autoimmune conditions. We have leg edema, leg swelling, hypertension, funny rashes. In other words, all the conditions that humans experience chronically. And now on this incredibly, uh, uh, this unprecedented scale. But Dr. Davis, they're so healthy, they're full of fiber and nutrients. How can you be against that? If we don't eat grass and wheat, we'll be missing out on all those nutrients. What What do you have to say to that? That's right. So bad things can have good things as well, right? Uh -huh. So cigarettes can make you breathe deeply, and that's good for you. <laughs> good so point. we got to be careful, right? So just because bad things can have uh, good aspects. So, you know, all the criminals in jail, uh, uh, there's probably some, they probably have some good features too. Maybe they're right. nice to their mothers, <laughs> but we yeah. doesn't mean they're not criminals. And so the same thing with wheat. You can have fiber. And by the way, the kind of fiber that humans really need is not cellulose. So the fibers that are thrust upon us by the food industry are cellulose fibers. So the fibers in cereals, for instance, are cellulose. Cellulose is not really needed by humans. Cellulose is wood. Mm. It's indigestible. Humans cannot digest cellulose. So it goes in the mouth. It comes out the rear end. Now, ruminants can digest it because they have a specialized gastrointestinal system equipped to digest cellulose. But you and I cannot. If there's a benefit to fiber, it's not the cellulose fibers. It's the digestible polysaccharide fibers digested by your bowel flora. That's the kind of fiber we need. And by the way, the data, the best data we have that shows that fiber is good for you does not show that cellulose fibers are good for us. It shows us that polysaccharide viscous or soluble fibers are good for us. In other words, when Dr. Um, uh, Dennis Burkett uh, many years ago made the observation that the native Africans uh, who had, were completely free virtually of colon cancer, hemorrhoids, and other gastrointestinal conditions were compared to the English colonists in Africa – uh, he looked at their stools and he saw the big steamy piles that the Africans made and the little dry pellets that the English uh, settlers made. He looked at the diet of the English and he saw crumpets and cookies and cakes and sugars. And he looked at the Africans eating roots, berries and nuts. And it was it was fibers. Now, the fibers are not cellulose fibers for the most part. They're viscous, soluble fibers that made the difference. So even the original conversation on the benefits of fiber came from observations of or viscous fibers, not on cellulose fibers. Mm -hmm. And when we compare the nutrient density of something like a grain or wheat to fruits and vegetables, I mean, fruits and vegetables are much more nutrient dense, especially for people who are going to be exercising and creating free radicals out in the sun. It's probably prudent to include uh, more fruits and veggies if you need some more carbs, perhaps. Yeah, if, if we would endorse that notion, I agree, of more carbs, they should come from, that's right, from some fruit, perhaps from some root vegetables like yams or sweet potatoes potatoes. Um, you know, I, I think some of the preparations like goo and some of the energy bars minus wheat and, ex and extreme amounts of sugar are okay. If, if mm. you're in mile eight of your run, if you're in mile 25 of your bike, I think it's very reasonable to use those kinds of things to supplement liver glycogen. Though I would make this point. I think more and more athletes are recognizing that carb loading is a destructive. It is not a necessary 
process, it's, it's quite destructive on health. You can actually identify the metabolic distortions that come from carb loading. Now, I should warn anybody who's, who's been carb loading, if you're going from carb loading to not carb loading, you will likely experience four weeks of impaired performance. So mm-hmm. the transition from carb loading and glycogen dependence to non-carb loading and fatty, oxida- fatty acid oxidation, that process takes about four weeks, give or take, to kick in the metabolic machinery for that to, to allow that to happen. So, in other words, I hear this a lot from uh, triathletes and runners and so on. They say, well, I stopped my carb loading, I went limited carbohydrate, and I really sucked at running <laughs> for the first four weeks. And so I, I must need carbs. Uh-huh. No, I wouldn't interpret it that way. I would interpret it to mean that your body is, has been dependent on carbohydrates in a very unnatural way. And the more natural state of fatty acid oxidation simply requires some time to gear up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I've found too after dropping a lot of the grains is that I only need a small amount of carbs, say like a half a sweet potato the night before a race. And uh, and my digestive tract eating that way is much better. And uh, I just feel better overall. Yeah. yeah I, I call the gastrointestinal track, Aaron, the, the first battleground in the fight between uh, wheat and you and your body. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hear that a lot from the athletes that the uh, the diarrhea that occurs in races, for instance, is much improved or gone entirely with elimination of grains. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about in the book about the addictive properties of wheat and how people just spontaneously reduce calories when when they give up wheat. Is that talk, talk a little bit about how wheat affects the brain and appetite? Sure. So. People People say things like, getting rid of wheat is just a low-carb diet. No, 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 no. There's a protein unique to wheat called gliadin. And so when you ingest gliadin, it's broken down into small proteins, polypeptides. Five have been identified. These are four or five amino acid long polypeptides, very small, small enough to cross into the brain. And they bind to the opiate receptors of the human brain. Now, different opiates have different effects. That's why morphine is different from heroin, is different from OxyContin. So the specific combination of of opiate receptors bound in the human brain determines the effect of various opiates. Well, the five polypeptide opiates that come from digestion of wheat gliadin bind to the opiate receptors, but they don't, uh, unlike morphine, say, don't provide pain relief, don't provide euphoria. They only provide the appetite stimulation that is shared by uh, other opiates. They stimulate appetite. Now, they also have other effects, by the way. So uh, depending on your individual susceptibility. So if you have kids with ADHD or or autistic spectrum disorder, those opiates from wheat cause behavioral outbursts and difficult attention and learning. If you have schizophrenia, it causes paranoia and it causes hearing voices, auditory hallucinations. It doesn't cause the disease, it makes the disease much worse. Mm. If you have bipolar illness, the gliadin opiates trigger the mania, the high. If you have a tendency towards bulimia or binge eating disorder, those gliadin wheat opiates cause food obsessions. Uh, intrusive food thoughts 24 hours a day. If you're just an everyday person without any of those conditions, it causes mind fog and increases appetite and can cause uh, food addictions. Mm. And so it's that gliadin opiate. And this is not my speculation, by the way. This comes from National Institutes of Health research. So it comes from legitimate sources dating back about 30, 35 years. It's just not talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can personally attest to the, the some of the mental effects that it's had on me, like feeling sleepy during the day 
day, feeling more clear thinking. And just by giving up weed, I somehow that that's had those profound effects on me. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. So this national advice to cut your fat, eat more healthy whole grains is in effect doping the country. It's mm. dumbing us down. It's impairing children's learning capacity. It's making people with psychiatric uh, illnesses worse. It's impairing the functioning of everyday people. So it is an incredible mistake that has been made, aided and abetted by our own government agencies. Mm. You know, you talk about a lot of other disorders that could be related to wheat in the book, things like uh, osteoarthritis and uh, celiac or celiacs for sure. And then there was one lady who was about to have her colon removed and she actually didn't, I don't think she tested positive for celiacs, but she get, tried it and she saved herself from re- having colon removal. Can you tell about her? Yeah, you know, the Aaron, that's a, that was, uh, I, I have uh, uh, fond memories of that case because she was the one who I finally said, all right, I've got to talk about this more widely. Because up till then, I had seen this happen many, many, many times, but it was so graphic, so telling, so dr- dramatic that I thought that that's when I committed to writing the book and taking this story uh, outside of my office, my, my own experience. But she was a young woman, 38 years old school teacher, and she had 12 years of ulcerative colitis. She's on three drugs, including an, an intravenous once a month intravenous drug, which by the way cost several thousand dollars uh, an injection. And she lived, despite all that, in constant cramps, misery, diarrhea, and hemorrhage. She was hemorrhaging from her colon. She was getting transfusions every couple of three months or so. And uh, I saw her for a trivi- relatively trivial issue. And um, uh, she tells me this story. She told me that because they couldn't control her hemorrhage or her pain or diarrhea, that they were going to take her colon out and give her an ileostomy bag. That is a bag on the surface that she wears. She's a school teacher of a school kid. You can imagine the eight or nine-year-old boys who hear the funny sounds that come from this ileostomy bag, not to mention the disfigurement and uh, health issues that come from having this bag. So she tells me the story. I tell her, you know, you have to get rid of the wheat. And she mm-hmm. says, well, why? They tested me, uh, the blood test for celiac disease. They biopsied me twice. I do not have celiac disease. I said, I understand all that. I'd still do it. You've got nothing to lose. Wheat causes incredible gastrointestinal disruption, celiac or otherwise. You've got nothing to lose. They're going to take your colon out. So she very reluctantly does it. She comes back three months later. She's 38 pounds lighter. And she told me that within five days, the gas, cramps, diarrhea, and bleeding all stopped. Wow. She would, She stopped one drug. She stopped two drugs. She stopped three drugs. She's cured. Erin, she's cured. Now, of course, they, they canceled her colon removal uh, surgery and ileostomy bag. So this woman experienced cure. Now, that's not uncommon, by the way. Mm. That was the turning point for me. That was where it was clear that this was not just about losing some pounds. It wasn't just about reducing blood sugar. This was about health and life transformations by removing this thing that is incredibly disruptive on multiple facets of health. Mm. Mm. That's incredible. Um, You're a cardiologist. Tell us a little bit about how wheat affects blood lipid profiles and how how could giving up wheat help us have a healthier heart? Well, on basic lipids, that is basic cholesterol panels, giving up wheat results in dramatic reductions in triglycerides and thereby a rise in HDL cholesterol. The effect on LDL, you may know that LDL cholesterol is one of the great scams of medicine. It is a calculated value. It's not even measured. And the calculation used to generate calculated LDL, it's called Friedewald calculated LDL, based on the equation uh, created at the, at the National Institutes of Health in 19, the 1960s, uh, that calculation is flawed, deeply flawed, because it has it makes basic assumptions about how you eat and what's in your blood. For instance, among the assumptions of the Friedewald formula is that the triglyceride content of all your 
fat-carrying particles, lipoproteins, are equal. Well, that's not true. And if you cut wheat out of your diet, if you restrict junk carbohydrates, the triglyceride content of lipoprotein drops, thereby invalidating the Friedewald equation. So in other words, you cannot use Friedewald calculated LDL cholesterol as an index of the particles in your blood. It is no longer valid when you make this change in diet. So there are uneven effects on that LDL cholesterol, but it's invalid. Mm. But you can go much farther. You can do such things as direct lipoprotein testing, that is direct measurement of those particles in the bloodstream. And you can see that people who consume lots of healthy whole grains have oodles of small LDL particles. And there's a clear-cut reason for that. When they eliminate wheat, small LDL particles plummet. For instance, 1,800 nanomoles per liter would be a typical small LDL measure. You eliminate wheat, it drops to zero Mm. or 180. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're not talking about 10% drops or 15%. We're talking about dramatic transformations of the blood patterns. So when you eliminate wheat, small LDL, the number one cause for heart disease in the U.S., drops like crazy. Triglycerides drop. HDL goes up. Blood sugar drops. So blood sugar does have effects on... uh, does affect coronary risk, Um, blood sugar drops, hemoglobin A1C drops, and thereby the process of glycation, glucose modification of proteins that leads to uh, coronary atherosclerosis, that drops. Inflammatory measures like C-reactive protein and other measures drop. You lose visceral fat, fat in the tummy, that reduces coronary risk. You reduce pericardial fat, that's fat that encircles the heart, that fat shrinks, and on and on. In other words, there's a long list of phenomena that occur with wheat elimination that to a large degree reduce or even eliminate the risk for coronary disease. Wow. Um, one of one of uh, the things that's on your website is the heart scan. Is using trigs to HDL just as good as a heart scan? Are you talking about a coronary calcium score? Yeah, I, I think that's what it is. No. Um, so now we're getting off into the whole world of how do you detect uh, silent coronary disease? Mm. Um, and that's uh, the technique that I advocate is a coronary calcium score or by a CT or an EBT heart scan. It's a cheap, easy screening technique. Okay. And nothing really comes. In other words, all those measures like triglycerides, HDL, small LDL, lipoproteins, all that kind of stuff are really very indirect snapshots of potential risk. But the disease itself, that is coronary atherosclerosis, or we say coronary plaque, that's what we really want to know. How much plaque do you have? Can you be a 40-year-old marathon running slender uh, guy and still have coronary disease? Yes, you can. In fact, you hear these stories, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, John was at mile 22 of his of his run. He collapsed and he was having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's caused by lipoprotein A. Lipoprotein A is a genetic pattern. I call these people perfect carnivores, by the way. These, <laughs> these people are typically smart. They're fit. They have great capacity for endurance exercise. They have tolerance to dehydration and starvation. They have heightened immunity to tropical infection. These people are wonderful survivors, but more so than other humans have excess risk for cardiovascular disease if they consume grains or sugars mm. and fail to consume fats and organ meats. <laughs> okay. So, um, so if somebody wants to know if they have coronary disease, the way to do it is not with these blood tests. It's with direct imaging of the coronary arteries themselves. And the only technique we have in 2013 are CT heart scans. Okay. Okay. 
Um, a, a couple issues on vanity that I'd like to mention is you say that wheat could have effects on things like wrinkles and man breasts. How does wheat affect that? <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, <laughs> we don't talk enough about that because, you know, elimination of wheat, Aaron, it involves so many aspects of health. But, you know, people often want to just talk about the weight loss part mm. or the anti-aging and youth preserving effects. So you're absolutely right. So uh, 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 man breasts, man boobs is a big problem. It's the fourth most performed elective surgery in males now. I've seen billboards uh, advertising plastic surgeons who have decided to devote their careers to, to male breast reduction surgery. We don't talk about this too much because guys are uh, obviously are terribly embarrassed, humiliated at having man breasts. But that is a problem of wheat. It's a problem of having visceral fat that accumulates because of exposure to healthy whole grains, mm -hmm. having lots of visceral fat, uh, increase the expression of the aromatase enzyme, which converts testosterone to estrogens. So these guys with their wheat bellies have high estrogen levels. Oddly, there's also an increase in prolactin expression from the pituitary gland. Prolactin, prolactation, it makes your breasts bigger. That's what, that's what pregnant ladies get to make their breasts big and make milk for their babies. But guys get it too when they have a wheat belly. So it's not uncommon to have a wheat belly and big man breasts. So uh, losing that wheat, so guys wear these devices to cover it up. They wear tight shirts. They won't wear, they won't go outside uh, shirtless. They'll even have surgery to reduce it. The solution is get rid of the visceral fat by getting rid of the foods that create visceral fat. You don't need surgery for this. You don't need drugs for this. You get rid of the food that causes this whole domino effect that leads to growth of breast tissue. Mm -hmm. People typically uh, report, they, I hear this all the time, unprompted. I feel 20 years younger and people tell me I look 20 years younger. I think that's a whole constellation of effects. One, of course, is the weight loss. Two is the freedom from a lot of skin problems. Uh, most commonly, the seborrhea that occurs along the sides of the nose. That's, that redness, that goes away. Uh, uh, wrinkles don't really recede so much as uh, they don't get any worse. Mm. Uh, people feel better, they look brighter. There's a change, it's hard to describe, there's a change in the appearance of the eyes and the skin. I think that's from the loss of the edema, the swelling that's, that occurs in wheat-consuming humans lost when you stop eating wheat. There's probably a lot more here. There's, there's, the whole youth-preserving anti-aging conversation is actually very fascinating, but it's among the uh, most poorly studied of all the phenomena. Mm. And, and part of the creation of wrinkles, you say, is from the formation of AGEs? and the high blood sugar that can ca cause glycation. Is that correct? Yes. So if you follow a diet that causes high blood sugars repeatedly throughout your day, such as following a diet rich in healthy whole grains, you have high blood glucose, you glycate proteins. Those proteins might be the proteins in the lenses of your eyes that leads to cataracts. It could mm. be the proteins in your cartilage of your hips and knees that causes brittle cartilage, joint pain, arthritis, or it could be the collagen and other proteins in your skin and that causes cross-linking stiffness and wrinkles. Mm. So glycation is a fundamental process in aging. It's a fundamental process in multiple disease states like arthritis and cataracts and many others, hypertension, cancer, heart disease. So uh, if you stop glycating, at least you, you minimize glycation down to its low natural level, you age more slowly. You don't get as many wrinkles. You don't get arthritis as, as rapidly. You don't get hypertension, heart disease, and cancer. 
as early as other people. So uh, uh, not engaging in a diet that raises blood glucose is a wonderful way to preserve youth. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some tips for people who want to give this a try. How would you recommend go, going about doing this, cold turkey or s slowly? I, I advocate doing it cold turkey because there's a withdrawal process. One, there's an addiction, and two, there's a withdrawal process. So if, if, if I have an alcoholic and I think that it's bad for him to drink two-fifths of vodka a day, and I say, John, I think it's really bad for you to drink all that vodka. I'd like you to cut back to two or three shots a day. He can't do it. So addictions can generally not be dealt with by simply cutting back. Two, there's a withdrawal process. It can be very unpleasant. Uh, only about 40% of people will experience this wheat withdrawal. It's a form of opiate withdrawal. It's nausea, fatigue, headache, and depression. And it can be quite unpleasant. So I know of no way to not have it if you're going to have it. You can do things like hydrate, use some salt, broths. Um, don't put yourself in stressful situations. Don't exercise. It's almost impossible to exercise in this three, four, five-day period where you're going through this withdrawal. You just got to grin and bear it. Everyone survives, and you come out of it feeling wonderful. It can end fairly abruptly, too. Uh, and perhaps someday we'll find a way to circumvent the whole withdrawal process, but 40% uh, uh, of people simply have to get through that. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, but I warn people not to interpret this as meaning you need grains. It does not mean that. It means you had an addiction to grains. You had an opiate effect on your brain, and getting rid of it is an unpleasant process that you simply must endure. Mm -hmm. but that, then, then, then the rainbows show up, and you feel better. And what kind of foods do you recommend that they replace the wheat with? I mean, you certainly don't want them doing other high uh, sh uh, glycemic index foods, correct? Absolutely. I'm glad you raised that issue. So we want people to, wheat, to be wheat and gluten-free, but not turn to gluten-free processed foods. Those foods are made with cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, and potato starch, the worst possible things you could use as replacements. So the food industry, the gluten-free food industry, needs to be taken to task. They have no idea what the hell they're doing. And they choose these awful replacement products that are among the very few foods that raise blood sugar even higher than wheat. Hmm. Very, wow. It's a short list, Aaron. It's a very short list of foods that can raise blood sugar and thereby cause glycation mm -hmm. worse than wheat, except cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, and potato starch. Mm -hmm. And so we eat none of those gluten-free replacement foods. You can eat naturally gluten-free foods. A cucumber is gluten-free. Lamb chops are gluten-free, but not the gluten-free processed foods made with junk carbohydrates. So I I'm sure it's, it's very consistent with what you're doing. That is, we advocate uh, a return to real single-ingredient foods, vegetables, nuts, meats. Eat the fat, of course. Eat the bone marrow. Uh, eat the liver. Uh, avocados, coconut, olives, olive oil. Real single-ingredient foods, the one with least potential for having been mucked up by agribusiness and big food. Now, uh, I learned a few years ago that that's all well and fine, but more people, more and more people would say, well, you know, I can do this, but holidays are a problem then, you know, because everybody's expecting apple pie, pumpkin pie, cheesecake, all the goodies we associate with the holidays. Or I'm having a, a, a football party on Friday. What do I serve? I'm having a birthday party for my seven-year-old. How do I serve birthday cake or cupcakes or goodies? So one of the things I've been doing with my time is coming up with ways to recreate all those fun foods, pizza, muffins, cookies, cupcakes, etc., without wheat, without sugar, without gluten-free junk carbohydrates. We're going to use benign, healthy ingredients like almond meal, almond flour, coconut flour, 
uh, stevia as a sweetener or other benign sweeteners. And we can recreate wonderful foods that are familiar to you with none of the health consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've tried out some of those recipes in your book, and they're they're really good. Uh, where do you recommend people go to find out more? Uh, what what are you and what are you, are you working on anything new lately? Oh sure, yeah, a good place to start after the Wheat Belly book is the wheat, my Wheat Belly blog, uh, which is uh, a busy place with lots of good things and including recipes. Use the search bar to find recipes. Okay. Um, uh, the homepage of the Wheat Belly blog is also linked to the Wheat Belly Facebook page, where we have a lot more conversations. Uh, there's a Wheat Belly cookbook, of course, for anybody who wants a hard copy of recipes. I just submitted the manuscript to my uh, editor for the Wheat Belly 30-Minute Meal cookbook, which won't come out till December 2013. Um, but I'm especially proud of what I did there because I included a whole section. Because it was a 30-minute meal, everything had to be done quickly. I came up with a whole bunch of seasoning mixes, sauces, jams, spreads, yogurts, kefirs, fun stuff that you can make really fast. You know, people are increasing distrustful. They, they recognize that even seasoning mixes can have wheat, not to mention cornstarch, maltodextrin, and other unhealthy components. So we make it ourselves. It's very easy. You can have, for instance, a beautiful container of your own, own homemade Moroccan seasoning mm. or your own uh, mayonnaise or other condiments. You made it yourself. You know it's safe. You keep it stored in your shelf or refrigerator and you can use it and it makes your life that much easier and healthier. Great. Well, th- thanks so much for writing this book. It's helped me out tremendously with my digestive issues and I really hope it's going to help out our listeners as well. Um, and thanks so much for your time today, Dr. Davis. Well, thank you, Aaron. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.